The following audio is from Redemption Church San Francisco. For more information, visit redemptionsf.com. Chapter 19, verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Susie. Good morning, church. How y'all feeling? Feeling good? Looking good? Yes? Good. Well, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, if it's your first time, very first time here at Redemption, why don't you just lift your hand? We want to acknowledge you if you're very first time here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here. Um, just out of these doors uh, after service, we have a gift for you at the Welcome Center. We would love for you to stop by. And look, I always tell uh, Redemption, I always tell our folks, y'all ought to be glad because my old church in St. Louis used to sing to the first-time visitors. <laughs> and so they would make you stand up and sing. The, the band would be playing in the background. and We would sing a song to all of the first-time visitors and so, you know what, let's just try it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hey, we have a guest speaker this morning. So glad to have this guy here to share God's word with us. And y'all, uh, bear with him. He just had a brand new baby a few weeks ago. So he's, uh, yes, he just went from one to two. So he's probably not getting very much rest. And But we're grateful to have him. He's come all the way from Southern California where he's a pastor there. He has been a pastor there for many years. And so uh, let's invite him up. Nathan Hung, why don't you come and share God's word with us? We're glad to have you, brother. Okay, good. Good morning, Redemption Church, San Francisco. Man, it is good to be here. Um, as Chris said, uh, I just had a baby last Monday, and um, my wife is still in Southern California watching the baby, and I just wanted to read this text to you guys so you can see how thankful I am to be here. She said, ugh, OMG, seriously, this kid never stops pooping. And so for the last couple of weeks, I've been up to my ears in dirty diapers, and I've been dreaming about just coming up here and spending some time with you guys. So I'm really thankful to be here. Um, uh, Chris came down about a month ago and kind of shared his heart with me, shared with me some of the things that are happening at this church, and I'm just so excited to be able to be here and to meet you guys. And um, I just want to invite any of you after service to come. Don't be shy. Come talk to me. I would love to get to know some of you and, and hear your stories and even share a little bit about me. Um, before we get into the word today, can I just pray for us? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much um, for this morning that we can gather as people who I'm sure there are people from all walks of life um, in this place right now. I'm sure that some people came into this place tired and, and burdened and, and broken, and I'm sure there are some people that came in feeling great about themselves and feeling great about their lives. And regardless of uh, where we are and how we came into this place, we know that you have a word for us. We know that 
Um, you are a God that offers us even greater rest than we know in this life. And, and so uh, today we want to see Jesus. We want to come to him because he is the one that ultimately offers us this rest. And so I pray that you would use me um, to speak clearly and that um, this word would fall into our hearts, be planted deep, and it might bear fruit in our lives and in this church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to start our time today by sharing um, a story that I realize is probably not going to make paint me in the best light. Um, it, it'll show you guys kind of how dumb I can be, but I'm just going to risk it and I'm going to share it anyways. Um, a couple years ago, I was at work and um, I was on my lunch break eating my lunch. I still remember what I was eating that day. Um, I was eating rice and I was eating beef and I was eating vegetables. And the reason I remember that is because um, you guys all know that rice is not uh, a food that's difficult to chew, right? Rice is soft, it's squishy. Um, but the reason that I remember that I was eating rice that day was because as I bit down on a grain of rice, I felt the worst. I felt the most excruciating pain I had ever felt in my life up to that point. Like, I can't even, even, I can't even begin to describe it even right now. It was a pain that started in my mouth, and then it just shot through my whole body. My nerves were on fire. I felt like I couldn't move. But see, in that moment, I knew exactly what was going on. I knew why I felt that pain. It was because I had developed a cavity. And, and this wasn't just any cavity. This was the mother of all cavities, okay? Um, and, you know, any sane, any logical, any reasonable person would know what they need to do next, right? They would know that they need to call a dentist and get this thing fixed. But let me tell you something about me, okay? I hate the dentist. Like, I am deathly afraid of dentists. Um, I know that there are some people who don't like to go to the dentist, and then there's me. This is a legitimate fear in my life, people. Uh, you can ask my wife. My palms get sweaty when I start thinking about going to the dentist. My feet start getting sweaty. I start shaking. I start crying out to Jesus because this is the worst thing in, the life, in my life, to, to think about going to see a dentist. And so rather than going to see a dentist to fix this cavity, you know what I did? I decided from that moment on, I committed from that moment on to chew all of my food on the other side of my mouth. Okay, so this cavity was on the left side of my mouth. I made a commitment, I'm gonna chew all of my food on the right side of my mouth, and if I ever feel pain, I'm gonna take Advil and I'm just gonna move on. Long story short, uh, the end of this story is I had to get two root canals because I developed a cavity on this side, and all of that could have been avoided if I simply went to the dentist. Now, I realize that that story makes me feel kind of, or makes me seem kind of dumb, but I share it because I think it illustrates something that probably a lot of you guys can relate to. And it's this idea that in life, I think you and I, even when we know that something is good for us, even when we know that something is important, it doesn't always mean that, that we go after that thing or that we pursue it. Right? Just like I knew that going to the dentist would have been good for me, I, I didn't go. And, and in fact, if you're like me, I think you could admit that there are oftentimes um, you neglect the things that are most important in your life. And you get caught up in things that are less important. For example, do we have any procrastinators here? You guys can raise your hands. This is a safe place. I'm not going to judge you. It's church. You can confess your sins. 
This is what procrastination is all about, right? Procrastination is knowing that there's something you need to do, knowing that there's something important. If you're a student, it's studying for that test. Maybe it's paying your bills. Maybe it's cleaning up your house. Whatever it is, there's something that you need to do. And rather than doing that thing, man, Netflix is calling my name. ESPN is calling my name. Netflix just came out with a new season of Stranger Things, and I have to watch that. I think that procrastination kind of shows what I'm talking about. Or, or when it comes to our physical or emotional health, I think all of us know that we don't do the things that we should do to take care of our bodies, to take care of ourselves. We don't exercise as much as we should. We don't go on breaks. We don't uh, take vacations or, or even sleep as much as we should. And even though we would admit that all of these things are important, all of these things are necessary, it doesn't mean that we do anything about it. I think this is true physically. I think it's true emotionally. But today, I, I want to say that I think this is especially true spiritually. I, I think many of us here are neglecting the thing that we need the most for our souls, the thing that we need most for our spiritual health. See, but what is that thing? What is it that our souls need the most? I think this passage that we read in Psalm 19 earlier, it, it gives us a clue, but before we get there, I kind of want to set some things up to let you guys know where I'm going, okay? And so uh, where I actually want to start is in Exodus chapter 20, um, in the second commandment. Uh, it should be on the screen. But here, God is talking to Israel, and he's giving them his people, his law. And in the second commandment, you can read along with me, he says to them, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You know, growing up in the church, I always thought that the second commandment was telling Christians to stay away from idols, that Christians aren't supposed to worship idols or images because God is jealous. It says it right there in verse five. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I read this, I always read it in a way where I started to see God or I started to believe that God was this insecure husband he was this insecure boyfriend that, that got jealous whenever his girl would start flirting or start chasing after other guys. See, the second commandment to me was God saying that he was jealous for his people. And he's telling his people, I don't want you chasing after other gods. I don't want you chasing after or loving or flirting other idols. But see, as I got older and I started to study scripture seriously, I came to see that that can't be what the second commandment is really about. And do you know why? It's because our God is not insecure about himself. Our God is God. He knows he's God. He knows that there are no other gods beside him. And, and we cannot equate our kind of jealousy with his jealousy. Our, our jealousy is driven by insecurities. His jealousy is driven by something else. And so do you know what the second commandment is really teaching? It's not so much teaching that God is jealous for his people, but it's teaching that he is jealous for himself. He is jealous for his own image. He is jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for his own reputation. 
See, in the second commandment, God is essentially telling his people, I am jealous for me, and I want to protect how you guys think about me. So when you're worshiping me, I don't want you to make up images of what you think I'm like. I don't want you trying to imagine what you think I'm like and then start worshiping whatever you come up with. Now, why is this so important to our God? Why does he make this the second commandment? It's because God knows that any image that you or I could ever come up with, no matter how great, no matter how beautiful, no matter how creative or artistic that image is, it will always fall short of who he really is. It will always fall short of his true image. Think about it. You and I, we are created things. We are creation. He is creator. Anything that created things could ever imagine, it would be small. It would literally insult our God. And so he is saying he does not want to allow us to reduce him to something smaller than what he really is. And he's reminding us that he is so much greater, so much higher, so much more awesome than what we could ever imagine. But see, that leads to a problem. And it leads to a question that we should all ask ourselves then. And that question is, how are we supposed to think about God? What are we supposed to think about him? Because the reality is this God is invisible. And here is where God would say that how we think about him, what we think about him, it always has to be based on, it always has to be according to what he has revealed about himself. You see, the God of Christianity has always been a God that reveals objective truths about who he is to his people. And then he calls his people to respond to those truths, to know him, to, to love him, to worship him according to the truths that he has revealed about himself. And as you start reading through scripture, you see that God does not primarily reveal himself in places or in images or in pictures or in things, but he does it in words. The Christian faith believes in a God of words. From the Ten Commandments to the prophets to the New Testament to Jesus himself, who in John 1 is called the Word who was with God in the beginning. See, God, our God is a God of words. He reveals his character. He reveals his plans through words, through the scriptures. Now, I know that's a long way to set up this passage that we're in, in Psalms, but you have to have that in the back of your mind to understand what David is talking about. You see, Psalm 19 is written by King David, and it's a psalm where we get to see David's view of the Bible. He's talking about the Bible here, and, and what you see for David is that this isn't just a book to him. This isn't just literature. David is praising the Bible. He is literally exalting Scripture, to David, this is the most precious thing in life. You see this in verse 10. Read it again with me in verse 10. He says, more to be desired are God's, word, God's words than gold, even much fine gold. To David, the Bible is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. We're seeing David talk about the Bible in a way where he's saying he prefers it over all the riches, all the pleasures of this life. And when I read this psalm, I ask myself, does, does David really mean this? Or is he simply exaggerating to make a point? Because could someone really want to pass up all the money, all of the best things in this life for this book? 
You know, this book that I have multiple copies of at home, this book that I have different translations of, this book that you and I could download as an app on our phones in just a couple of seconds, this book that honestly in our society, in our culture, people don't read this book. They don't regard it as relevant. And and could somebody really mean what David is saying here? Friends, I think that David is telling the truth. I do not think he is exaggerating. And the reason that he's not exaggerating is because this word is precious to him. It is personal to him. David sees this as God, the living God, making himself known to David. And David sees this as a way that he can draw closer to a true and living God. You see this in verses 7 to 9. Right? In, se- in verses 7 to 9, every word that David uses to describe the Bible, he calls it the law, he calls it the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the rules. But after each of this word, after each of these words, he tacks on a phrase. He says, of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. He repeats that phrase six times in three verses. And I don't want to get too technical with you guys, but this word that David is using for, for Lord to describe God in Hebrew, he's not using this general generic name for God. Elohim, this is the general word that you use to describe God, and he's not using that word. He's using the word that is personal and specific to God. He's using the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal, specific name that God only gives to his people. He only gives to the people that he has come into a personal and a covenant relationship with. And this is David's view of the scriptures. This is why David loves the law, because ultimately behind the law, behind the words, He knows there is a true and living God, and that is the God that he wants more than anything. See, this makes me um, think about when I started dating Allie, who's my wife now. Um, Before we started dating, we didn't know each other. We didn't really know each other. And um, I was pretty curious to get to know her, but I wanted to choose the, the safest lowest risk way of me not getting rejected by her. And, and so I decided to email her. And, and uh, we just started emailing back and forth. Every day, I would write her an email. The next day, she would write me an email. And, and the funny thing is these emails, they started out really short. It started out with like, hey, what did you do today? Uh, what did you eat? And then by the end of the month that, that we were emailing back and forth, they turned into these like 10-page essays Like, I never put so much thought into literature, like writing a paper that wasn't for school. I was throwing in quotes. I was throwing in my passions, my plans in life. I was throwing in scripture. I was telling jokes. I just wanted to impress her with these emails. But here's the thing. Because these emails were the only form of communication that we had at that time, she was in college. I was working full time. I remember looking forward to getting that email from her every single day. Like, I remember being at work, and I would constantly check my email to see if she had written me. And when she had finally written me, I I just breathed a sigh of relief. Like, it felt so good. And and here's the thing. I would never read her emails when I was at work. I would always wait till I got home. I would try to get in the right mindset. I would make a cup of coffee, set the ambiance. 
And, and, and the reason that I, I did that was because these emails weren't something that I was just trying to get through. Like, because I was communicating with her in this way, I, I was connecting with this girl that I was so interested in, and I wanted to soak in the moments that I'm reading her emails. See, that's kind of like what David is talking about when he talks about the scriptures, except he is saying that the person or the God behind the scriptures is so much more precious than anything or any person that you and I have ever come across. See, if the Bible didn't have a precious God behind it, then it wouldn't be precious. But when we start to see this word as a primary means that we can draw closer to this precious God, then like David, I think it starts to become more attractive than anything else. But see, what um, I love about this psalm is that David doesn't only see God's word as personal. He sees it as powerful. He, He praises it because there is power. There is something that this word does. You can look at it again again, in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word revives. God's word gives life to our souls. And so think about what this means. That when you are reading the Bible, when you are meditating on it, when you are digging deep into those parts that are hard to understand, there is something at work that you cannot see. There is something at work that you oftentimes can't feel. And what is going on is the Holy Spirit is using scripture to revive and to restore your soul. But what does that even mean? Derek Kidner, uh, a commentator, he says that this word soul in the Psalms, it always has the sense of your true self. And and so a way to think about verse 7 is that scripture has the power to awaken you, to show you your true self, to show you who you were really meant to be, to show you your true identity. Because the thing is that, guys, there is something broken about your identity and my identity. See, we are people where we tend to make our identities and we place our identities in things that God never intended for us. We place our identity in our marriages. We place our identity in our careers. We place it in in our talents, in our intellect. We place it in our reputations and what people think about us. And Psalm 19 is telling us that only scripture can help you to see how you've distorted your true identity. And so I am more and more convinced these days that the thing that you and I need the most is God's truth. Because when we don't have it, we start making up our own truth. And and all of our tiredness, all of our depression, our anxiety, our stress, our bitterness, guys, it's not because of your circumstances. But it's because you have built your life around these truths that you make up and they only turn out to be lies. And you've built your life around these lies, and you're affected by your lies. See, we develop wrong perspectives about others. We we develop wrong perspectives about ourselves and expectations of ourselves. We develop wrong perspectives even about the church, and these things are so far from God's truth. And maybe, just maybe, this is the reason why some of you are miserable in your life right now. And if that is the case, then let me just say, it is not enough that you read the Bible at some point in the past. It's not enough that you know what it's generally about. 
It's not enough that you wait for Sundays to come once a week for a pastor or a preacher to feed it to you. You have to learn to press into this word every single day for yourself. That is how a relationship with a living God works. That is when you start to see him waking you up and, and, and reshaping and reforming your identity. You see, God's word revives your soul. Not only that, but he goes on in verse seven to say that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It, it makes the simple wise. It gives us wisdom. I think Many people, they think of the Bible as this book that is meant to limit our freedom and joy. They look at this book as a set of rules that is supposed to keep you from enjoying your life. But David is saying that God's word does something completely opposite. What it does is it gives you wisdom so that you can enjoy life fully. And so you can experience what true freedom is all about. And so think about what this means, okay? There is wisdom in scripture for sex, there is wisdom for how sex was meant to be enjoyed. I, I'm not talking about the kind of sex where one or two people wake up feeling dirty, feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, feeling like they made a mistake. But I'm talking about the kind of sex that God designed where two people truly enjoy not only mingling their bodies, but they're mingling their souls. See, there is wisdom in this book of how sex was meant to be enjoyed. There is wisdom for how money is supposed to be viewed how money is supposed to be earned and spent so that we're not crushed by debt, so that we're not chasing after things we don't need, so that we're not uh, looking to, to, to keep getting more and more and more to the point that we're, we're just tired. But, but rather, there's wisdom in this book for how we're supposed to view money, how it can be a blessing, how it can advance God's kingdom. See, there is wisdom for marriage and relationships and art and food and children. Every good thing in this life, it was designed and it was given by God. And this word points you to his wisdom on how you can view these gifts, how you can manage them, and how you can truly enjoy them. But see, if you want God's wisdom, I think where you and I need to start is we need to repent I think we have to repent of our pride that makes us think that we're smarter than God. And, and we all do this. You do this, I do this. Where we think that we know how to enjoy these gifts apart from him, the giver. I love this quote from um, a, a pastor and author, Tr Paul Tripp. It should be up on the screen. He says, one of the sad and destructive desires of the sinful nature is the desire for self-rule. One of the dark delusions of sin is that it causes us at points to buy into the insane thought that we might be smarter than God. His grace works in your heart of submission. That is a heart that esteems his authority and finds joy in his law. See, Paul Tripp is saying that when you come under scripture, when you submit to God's word and his authority, that's where you find true wisdom and true joy. And the last thing I want to highlight about the power of God's word, it comes in verse 8. David says that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Here's where I want to be real with you guys. I am not up here saying that to obey God's word, to live according to his commandments is always easy, it's always fun, or even it's always clear. I'm not saying that. But listen to what David is saying here. 
He is saying that God's word is always right. His plans are always right. In other words, when God commands something or he forbids something, when God seems to be silent and he's not giving you that thing that you want or that thing that you think you need, when God disciplines you or he uses suffering to sanctify you, those trials, those seasons of trials that you're going through, it's not meaningless. It's always right. And it might not seem like it to you in that moment, but according to our God who is sovereign over all things, who is good, he, his plans are always right. And you see, it takes a person who is in his word regularly, consistently to see that, where you start seeing that even trials, even suffering, even pain can be right in your life. And so hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that God's word is easy or it's fun, but in the end, if you are someone who trusts in his word, even when everything in your life has fallen apart, even when you have lost everything, just like Job, you'll be able to say, God, you give and you take away, but blessed be your name. And you are gonna have joy in your heart as you say that. Now let me bring it down to earth for us a little bit. Um, I'm sure that for many of you, especially if you've been coming out to church, you know that God's word is important. And you've been told to read your Bible. You know, pastors, preachers, this is our favorite uh, application point. Read your Bible, read your Bible. But see, our issue, your issue and my issue, isn't that we don't know it's important. It's that God's word doesn't captivate us. That's why many of us, we don't prioritize spending time in it. Because it's not interesting. It doesn't seem relevant to the things that we're going through. Or if you are someone that prioritizes God's word, I think those kind of Christians that I talk to, they're often doing it out of a sense of duty. I don't think many of us are like David in Psalm 19, where we're literally in love with this word. Why is that? I think it's because many of us, we read it in a way that it was never, intend it was never meant to be read this way. We either read it as a collection of moral lessons that we need to apply, and so we turn every story, every passage into some moral lesson that we have to obey. The story of Abraham becomes a story of how we need to have more faith in life. The story of Job becomes a story of how we need to deal with suffering in life. So we read it as a book of moral lessons, or we read it as a self-help book. We read the Bible as something that's supposed to guide us through the tough decisions in our life, something that's supposed to help make our lives easier and better. I think this is the reason why Philippians 4.13 is one of the most popular verses for Christians. You know that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? We love that verse, why? Because it sounds so motivating. It's so inspirational. It's encouraging, it's uplifting. It makes us feel better about our lives. But here's the thing, guys. Do you know why reading the Bible as a book of moral lessons or as a self-help book, it robs God's word of its power and it keeps you from being captivated by it? Do you know why? It's because when you're reading the Bible like that, you've made it about you. You've made the story of the Bible the story of your life. And the reality is you don't need another self-help book. There are a million out there. But probably more importantly, it's, you're not going to be captivated by God's word if you're reading it like that because your story is not enough. 
I think deep down, you know this, I know this, that no matter how many fitness plans we go on, no matter how successful we are, no matter how high we climb up that ladder, no amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of pleasure in this life will ever be enough for us. And so if the story of your life was all about you and how great you could become, and the Bible is simply supposed to help you with that, of course it won't be captivating. God's word won't be captivating to you because your story isn't enough. And the Bible has to be bigger than you. It has to be, more, it has to be about more than just helping you with your life. And so the question then is, what is it about? And how are we supposed to read God's word? I think in Acts 24, Jesus answers this for us in a really profound way. See, in that passage, he appears to two of disciples after he's risen from the grave. And look what Luke tells us Jesus starts doing for these two disciples in Acts 24, 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Guys, do you see how amazing this is? Jesus is telling us that the Bible from beginning to end is about him. It's about Jesus. And so when you read every story or passage in scripture, it's not supposed to be telling you what you should be doing. It's not teaching you some lesson of what you need to apply. It's not supposed to make your life easier or make you feel better about your life. It is simply supposed to point you to see a person to see Jesus, who fulfilled everything that you couldn't. Jesus, who, who followed every single rule that you couldn't. Jesus, who is truer and better than any character that you will read about in this Bible. If anything, when you read it, you're supposed to see how you can't live up to God's standards. But Christ did on your behalf, and then he died for you. And so if you place your faith in him, in, in this perfect life that he lived, in this death that he died on your behalf, when you place your faith in him, Jesus' story becomes your story. And Jesus' story is the only one that matters. You know, when you read about the characters in the Bible, Abraham, Job, David, you're not supposed to think, how can I be like these people? But you're supposed to see Jesus was a better better Abraham. He was a better Job. He was a better David. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He's, a, he's an author. He's a pastor. He says, Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. And so if your main thought after you read the Bible is what is God telling me to do? How does he want me to live? Then you are missing the most important point. But if you are reading it and you are asking yourself, where is Jesus in this text? What is it that Jesus did that I could never do? Then I think you are going to start seeing the Bible the way that David did. It's going to become precious to you. It's going to become personal. It's going to revive your soul and give you wisdom and joy because you are going to start seeing Christ who is better than all of life. And that is what you and I need more than anything. 
You know, as I'm closing up, I just want to kind of share something about my son, Jordan. My son, Jordan, not the one that we just had, but he's uh, my firstborn. He's three years old, and he's in this stage that I think is awesome. I love it because it's a stage where he thinks I am the greatest thing in the entire world. Okay, Jordy, I call him Jordy, he copies everything that I do. And so when I'm at home, um, I'm I'm really into golf, so I find myself, you know, kind of like practicing my golf swing, or I'm really into basketball, and so I'll pretend like I'm shooting hoops, or or I'll pick up my guitar and I'll start playing guitar. And Jordy, he just copies me. He starts swinging a golf club, he starts shooting a basketball, he picks up his little ukulele and he starts playing it. And, and it's because he thinks I am the greatest thing in his world. At least that's what I tell myself. But guys, see, I cannot wait for the day that Jordy starts understanding and I can start teaching him that there is someone better than his dad. There is someone more perfect than me. There is someone who loves Jordy way more than I could ever love him, who has the power to give him the life that I could never give him. But see, to find that God, to find that Savior, it starts with how we look for him in this word that he has revealed. And, and so when we do family worship, because I do family worship with my family, we, we sing songs, we read through stories of the Bible, I got to stop highlighting the characters in the Bible. I got to stop highlighting Gideon and David and, and the Apostle Paul. I got to stop telling him to not be like the Pharisees. I got to stop turning every story into a lesson on how Jordy should live his life. All I have to do is simply keep pointing him to see Jesus in the text, to highlight Jesus, because when he sees Jesus, he is going to see someone that's perfect. He's going to see someone that's far better than himself, far better than his dad, far better than this life. And he's not going to want to be like me anymore. And and that's okay. I want that. Because I'm not that great. And I want him to have someone better to chase after, which is Jesus. Friends, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would truly be a church that is built on God's words, not your own. My desire is that when you speak to each other, you'd be a community that knows and loves God's word, that it just spills out of you in your encouragements to one another, in your rebukes, in your fellowship? Can you imagine the kind of transformation that you would see among you when someone in your small group shares about a sin or a struggle and the other members don't respond with advice? I hate advice. You know why I hate advice? Because advice, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't last. Advice makes people focus more on themselves and their own problems. But instead, rather than responding with advice, when a sin or a struggle is shared, that that your small groups would start to talk about God's word and what God's word has to say about that sin. And, And that each person would start pointing that person to see Jesus. I need people to stop telling me what they think about my life and my problems, and I need them to start pointing me to Jesus because, frankly, he's better. And so can I just end with something practical? I don't want to tell you guys what to read. I don't want to tell you when to read because you and I both know that unless you decide for yourself, you're not going to do it. But I want to simply ask you this. When are you going to start realizing that your life is not enough? No matter what it is that you're chasing after, it's not enough. And when are you going to start realizing that Jesus is better so that you start looking for him and searching for him in his word. I'll tell you something, it's not gonna magically happen. 
You're not going to one day accidentally start preferring to read God's word rather than watching Netflix or watching sports or spending time with your friends. But you have to choose to believe that Jesus is better because he is. Pick a time. Pick a book. Get started. Don't, don't get overambitious. Don't, don't try to read 10 chapters at once. Don't start in a book that's really hard like Leviticus. Start somewhere easy. Start in Philippians. Read 1 John because, again, this isn't a contest. It's not for, for you to compare yourself to others. This is for the good of your soul, that you would be revived, that you would start seeing Jesus more clearly, more precious than anything else. That is my hope, and that's my prayer for your community. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we confess to you that we are a people that buy into false truths. We buy into lies all the time. Whether it's culture telling us what's true, whether it's our relationships or people that are telling us what's true, we believe those things more than we believe your word. And so we want to confess to you right now that, that our tiredness, our lack of joy is because we have not simply believed that you are a God that, that speaks the true truth to us. I pray for this community, I pray for these people that they would start to esteem your word, that they would start to, to, to love your word, to, to prioritize your word, and, and that as they dig deep into it, that they would see Jesus more and more clearly. Because I know that for every person here, myself included, when we start seeing Jesus, Man, this world fades away, our problems fade away, and, and we, are, we, we can start recovering the, the true people that you designed us to be. And so my hope and my prayer is that your spirit would convict our hearts, that your, your spirit would be using your word to, to speak truth into our lives, to bring life into our lives, and, and that we would see transformation in our own lives as well as in this church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.